Now that is how you celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What a, a joy uh, to lift our voices and to sing with such passion because of what He has done for us. You know, the truth is we celebrate Easter Sunday with such passion because of really the mourning that takes place on Good Friday. When we look at the cross of Jesus Christ and the sorrow and the sadness and the pain and the suffering, the hope and the joy that we have comes from the radical contrast that exists between what took place on Sunday and what took place on Friday. That Jesus Christ, the one who suffered and died, rises victorious from the grave to give hope and life to all those who believe in Jesus Christ. And the truth is this, you can't have the cross without the resurrection. The cross without the resurrection is utterly worthless, but you cannot have the resurrection without the cross. The two of them combine so beautifully to paint the picture and to accomplish the reality of our salvation. I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are walking to the front. They're going to turn and walk towards the back. We would love to put a, a Bible into your hand this morning if you don't have one. So go, just feel free to put your hand up in the air. We'll get a Bible across to you. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, just take this one home with you. This is our gift to you this morning. We would really, really be grateful to give you a copy of God's Word and uh, this morning, we're jumping back into 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you were here on Friday, you know that we were there. We looked at the first part of this section of Scripture, and we want to look now at the second part. But as you're getting yourself situated in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I want to read the entire passage, beginning in verse 9, all the way through to the end of verse 11. Follow along with me. The Apostle Paul writes this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. We focused on that, and such were some of you on Friday, and this is what we're going to focus on this morning. But you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. On Friday, we looked at how every single one of us has an I once was statement that really defines who we are apart from Jesus Christ. And for some of you, maybe it's a I currently am statement because you're not in Christ this morning, but every single one of us, regardless of where we're at, has an I once was statement that was defined by a life of sin and the destruction and damage that sin has caused to us. But the hope of this passage reminds us that there is a, a but now statement that can define us, that can characterize who we are. In other words, what we have being painted here by Paul is the very picture and the very power of what it means to be radically transformed by the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see Paul reminding the believers in the church in Corinth that they can come from the place of being dead in their sin to being alive in Jesus Christ. They can come out of the darkness that they once lived in into the light of Jesus Christ. And those who were lost, the hope of the gospel says, can now be found in Jesus Christ. We can all say, this is who I once was. And instead of being defined by that, we can now be defined by, but now I'm. 
Paul uses in this verse, it's in verse 11 in particular, a set of metaphors that are attempting to describe the indescribably multifaceted experience of God's transforming grace. He wants us to be pulled into the story of God's redemption to see exactly what happened to us. On Friday, we saw why the cross was necessary, and today we look at what happens through both the cross and the resurrection. What happens to us to take us from that place where we once were to who we now are in Jesus Christ. It's interesting, when you read verse 11, what you can't see, maybe if you have the the ESV, some versions capture this better than the ESV, but in front of every one of these categories, the sanctified, the washed, the sanctified, and the justified, there is a little word in the original language, and it is this, but... Before every single word, the text would read this, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit, by the Spirit of our God. That one little word packs so much punch. It emphasizes just how radical and just how transformative the the grace of God truly is in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. So this morning, I want us to get more in-depth in terms of what each of these pictures, these metaphors, means for us. While we were once dead in our trespasses and sin, while we were once stained by sin, here's the hope that we now have in Jesus, but now I'm scrubbed clean by the righteous blood of Christ. The death and resurrection of Jesus was the hope that Paul was reminding these believers of. He was reminding them that who they were no longer has to define who they are And in fact, there has been a radical shift for all those who come to faith in Jesus. Paul says, this is who you were. These sins characterized who you were. And not just these sins, but the very identity you had was sinful. You were a sinner. Your very nature was corrupted by sin. But it's no longer who you are because of Jesus Christ, Paul is telling these believers. The old can be made new. The dead can be made alive. The dirty can be scrubbed clean. All of life, all of humanity is stained, is marred, is distorted by sin. The question for humanity and the question for us to be in right relationship with God is this. How can we get rid of that stain of sin? I read a story this past week, intending to portray the permanent damage done by our sinful actions and the attempt by so many to try and remove the damage, remove that stain of sin, the individual telling the story began like this. There once was a naughty boy whose father would hammer a nail into a piece of wood every time his son did something wrong. One day, the boy asked why, and when it was explained, the boy decided that he would behave better. Each time he did something good, his father would remove the nail from the board. Eventually, all the nails came out of that board, and waiting to allow the suspense to build before the punchline, the man telling the story said this, yes, the nails were gone, but the holes always remained. Again, the story portrays In many ways, at least from a secular perspective, the damage that is done by sin, the damage that cannot be removed, no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we think we can take away that stain of sin, it actually remains, and it is so deep. 
I think the story vividly illustrates how many in this world, maybe many even in this room, try to deal with their own sin. And I think deep down, listen, we all know that we have sinned, that we have violated God's law, and there is a sense that we are going to be held accountable to God by that. But you know what? I, I think there is a, a, some ways that we try and deal with sin. And I'd like of you, for you to think this morning of what we are like in our sinful condition. This, this glass which was once beautiful, is now covered in mud. It is stained by sin. And just imagine, I was covering this with mud last night, and my daughter was watching me, my eight-year-old daughter, and she says, Dad, that's disgusting. And I said, exactly. Because this is what we're like in our sin. All of us were like a beautiful glass that you could see through that was meant to show the very image of God. Our identity that was created was given to us by Him, but sin enters the world, and now every single one of us has been plunged into sin. We are covered by sin both inside and out. And I think there's, there's some ways we try and deal with our sin. Let me give you some examples. First, I think some of us try to simply deny it. We try to deny it. We try to, you know, I'm really not sinful. I'm really a good person. And, and that's like this cup saying, I'm really not dirty. It doesn't matter how often you say it or how loud you say it. It doesn't change the reality of what is true. Denying it never gets anybody anywhere, and yet I think many people simply want to float through life trying to deny the reality of their sin and their sin nature. Uh, I think there's a second way people try to deal with their sin nature, and I think that's this. They try to compare it. This is so often the case in our world. You know, when, when you talk to somebody maybe about the reality of their sin, the, the gut reaction or response is to say, well, I, I'm not as bad as this person. I'm no Hitler. You know, that's like the cup saying, well, I'm not as dirty as another cup. It doesn't matter. You're dirty. You're filthy. You're, you're no longer what you were meant to be. You're so stained and so marred. There's no hope for you. But the problem is this. Here's another way that people try to deal with their sin. They simply try to mask it. You know, masking our sin is the equivalent of trying to convince others that we're not as bad as we really are. This is what Jesus, when he spoke to the Pharisees, he, remember what he said to them? He said, you're like a whitewashed tomb. You try and clean up the outside of the cup, but inside you're, you're filled with dead man's bones. I think so often in our lives what we run around doing is, is we take you know, what we think is a clean rag but is really a dirty rag trying to rub off the dirt on ourselves so that we try and show people that we're really something special and clean. The problem is, is like the prophet Isaiah said, all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. See, our problem is when we try and clean ourselves up, we're just rubbing ourselves with more dirt. We think we're getting clean. We're actually getting dirtier by our attempt of self-righteousness. I think there's another way that's common that we deal with our sin, and that's this. We try to replace it. You know, we're masking it as trying to convince other people that we're more righteous than we are Replacing it is trying to convince God that we're more righteous than we are. So we do a lot of things. We, we think, you know, if I can be better, you know, if I can do more good things, then it will somehow erase the bad things. If I can become a more religious, if I can go to church more often, you know, beyond just Christmas and Easter, somehow I can outweigh my bad with my good, and God will then somehow look past my bad. I can replace those things. But here's the problem. What is required of us, because we are so stained, because we are so dirty, here's the reality for every one of us. Our sin cannot be taken away by us. Only God can remove it. 
We can't deal with it, and that's what the cross of Jesus does, and that's what the resurrection does. You see, God takes us in our dirty condition, in our unusable condition, in our marred and distorted condition, and he plunges us into Jesus Christ. In the blood of Jesus Christ, what's happening is this. All of us in our sin are being scrubbed clean by the righteous blood of Jesus Christ. He washes us. He cleanses us. He removes what we can't remove on our own. He restores us back into what should be a a proper condition. No longer marred by our sin, we are cleaned up by the grace of God, all because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, the blood of Jesus Christ is the strongest detergent in the universe. You watch those commercials on TV, you know, all of those soap commercials where they promise you can remove the stains. Well, listen, every attempt is like a a, a faulty, fake brand of detergent that simply masks or covers up or distorts the stain that's already on us. But the blood of Jesus is the detergent that fully, finally, completely removes the stain for good, never to return. You see, to remove your nails from that board, Jesus had to be nailed to a piece of wood. Because we couldn't fill the holes that remained in our attempts to pull the nails out, Jesus would receive holes in his hands and his feet. His blood was poured out, his life for ours. Paul said this in Titus 3 verse 5, that he has saved us not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Listen, only the grace of God by Jesus Christ can wash away our sin, right? We sing that song, what can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus can. I once was defined by the stain of sin in my life. All of humanity apart from Christ is defined by the stain of sin in their life. But now, listen, by the grace of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ, I am scrubbed clean by the righteous blood of Jesus Christ. But it gets better than that. The gospel message goes beyond this idea of simply cleaning up or repairing what is broken. Not only, you see, am I scrubbed clean, but now I'm made holy by the perfect life of Christ. He moves from this place of being washed, and by the way, these aren't necessarily in chronological order. He's simply painting this this picture, and so much more can be said of what happens to the person who finds their identity and life in Jesus Christ. Not only are you washed, he says, you are sanctified. That is a, a theological word that simply means to be set apart from sin and to be devoted entirely to God. See, apart from Christ, we are all unrighteous, which means that we have given ourselves to sin. We are under the power of sin. We are slaves to sin. And we saw the testimonies that were shared, and every one of us can say the same thing. There was one time in our lives where sin utterly and totally dominated our lives, our very existence. But the perfect life of Christ teaches us that sin had no power over him. Not once 
Could it exercise any authority and dominion over Jesus Christ? Even sin's final blow, death to Jesus Christ, could not contain him. He rose from the grave victorious. But before he went to the cross, it's important to understand that he lived on this earth a perfect life. He had in himself perfect sanctification. He always, in every way, obeyed the will of God. He never sinned, not once. He was unblemished. He never, think about this, he never had a sinful thought, not one. He never had a sinful word spoken from his lips, and there was never a sinful deed done by him. Even in Satan's greatest attempt to cause Jesus to sin, you remember that in Matthew chapter 4, Satan leads Jesus out into the wilderness for 40 days where he fasts, and he tempts Jesus three times. Jesus withstood the most intense temptation from Satan, and by the way, that picture is intended to remind us that where Adam failed in his temptation by Satan, and where Israel failed in their obedience to God, here comes Jesus Christ, the man who is also God, and he alone completely obeys God, even in the face of the greatest temptation. He succeeds where everyone else has failed, and as such, he offers to the world, he offers to you this morning an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is outside of you but can be given to you. So why is this so important for us to wrap our minds around? Listen, because this is what's required to live eternally with God. It's not enough to simply have your life washed up. You have to actually possess perfect obedience to God in every way. The problem then becomes this reality for all humanity. Not one of us has this and not one of us could accomplish this. But God can and God did. We need to be perfectly obedient and this is utterly impossible in our sinful state. In fact, here's what the scripture reminds us of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 We looked at it on a Friday as well. It's so helpful to remind our hearts, listen, here's how this happened. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, here it is, look, we might become the righteousness of God. In Jesus Christ alone, we can have his righteousness credited to our account. So not only are we now this this cup that has been washed and cleaned up, spotless, unmarred because of sin, kind of back to our original condition. Well, God in his son, Jesus Christ, takes his perfect life and he pours it into our cup. He fills us up with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Every one of us now in Jesus Christ stands before God Listen, and you need to see the analogy of this clear glass because what God does, when we stand before God one day, listen, the hope is this. If you stand before God without the righteousness of Jesus Christ, you will stand and God will look in you and he will look through your life and what he will see is your attempts to be righteous, but what your life will be filled with was sin, which will be unacceptable and you will be denied access into the presence and the kingdom of God. But when God looks at you and he sees you on that final day and he sees right through you and he looks at the righteousness of Jesus Christ that has filled you, that has robed you, you will be acceptable and accepted. This is what the gospel does. We, by the grace of God, are made 
holy. It's not our righteousness that makes us acceptable. It's His, and it's only His. He fills us with what is absolutely necessary to be in His presence for eternity. Where I once was unrighteousness because of the perversion of sin in my life, but now I'm made holy by the perfect life of Christ. But it goes beyond that. You see, I was once damned by the penalty of sin. Every one of us would not only be denied access into God's kingdom forever, we saw last week that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the question then becomes, well, what is it then that we will inherit? Well, we will get exactly what we paid for without Christ. We will pay the penalty for our own sins. He can pay them for us, or we can pay them for all eternity on our own. But the hope of the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, reminds us that now I'm declared innocent by the substitutionary death of Christ. The imagery of the courtroom should come to your mind when you hear the word justification. It is a legal term. The idea is that we are declared innocent. It speaks really, when you think of it theologically, of our new standing before God. What is necessary is that we're washed, that we're filled with the righteousness of Christ, but the penalty that we deserve doesn't simply go away. It needs to be dealt with in full. In other words, there's, there's no forgive and forget when it comes to God. I had a conversation with a man just recently who thought that that's the way that God would operate, that God would simply forgive and forget. There's a massive problem with that line of thinking because God is perfectly holy. He is pure. He always does what is right. He is just. That is a very part of his nature. And as a just judge and a just king, listen, it is never just to let the guilty go unpunished. We wouldn't stand for it in a human court of law. And in the divine court, God will not stand for it. So for God to be, listen, both merciful, forgiving, and just... Instead of rightly punishing you and I, which is what we deserve, he puts forward a perfect substitute in our place. He offers up someone who can take what we deserve and who willingly does so. He offers up someone who can pay the price in full, which, by the way, is an eternal price. Only an infinite, eternal God can offer an infinitely eternal sacrifice and therefore bring about an infinitely and eternal payment for our sins. Since no mere human can fulfill this requirement, God himself must do this for us. Then and only then can we be declared innocent before God. In fact, listen to what Paul says as he speaks in Romans 4. He's speaking of Abraham's faith and how it was accredited to him as righteousness. His faith, not his own works. He didn't justify himself. He says this is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us, listen, who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see, without the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we remain guilty in our sins and we deserve the punishment of God. But here what we see is this. God brings forth in his divine court a substitute that perfectly pays for everything we've ever done and he offers him in our place and we receive that we take that payment by believing in faith in Jesus Christ you say well what what happens to our sin you see this substitute as he stands in our place 
Our sin needs to be dealt with, and it needs to be dealt with in full. So God takes what is ours, our sinful mess, all of the muck and the dirt of our lives, right down to the very core of our being, and he pours it out on Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ takes what is ours so that we can have fully what is his. And in so doing, listen, and in taking our sin upon himself on the cross, he took in our place the punishment we deserved. He took the full weight of God's wrath as he hung on the cross. That's why we celebrate that Jesus declared it is finished. Now what we are is we are a cup that is filled with the righteousness of Jesus Christ restored back to our original purpose and design. And here's the beauty of it. You know, Paul uses this language that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the blessing and the benefit of the gospel. Now that we're righteous in Christ, our sins fully dealt with, now we can inherit the kingdom of God. You see what God does? God does with that cup what I'm going to do with that cup later today. I'm going to bring it back to its rightful place. I'm going to bring it right back home where it belongs. And that's what God promises those who turn and put their faith in Jesus Christ. He takes us back into his house. We become a part of the family of God. He reserves for us a seat at his table. We get to sit and dine with the king for all of eternity to experience the blessings of his presence and his power. There is total transformation because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where we were once stained, unrighteous, and condemned, we now stand clean, righteous, and set free, made right. All of these words are intended to remind believers of what has happened to them because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is why we celebrate Easter the way we do. We are radically defined, totally transformed. And by the way, every one of these words, this idea of washed, sanctified, and justified, they're all in the passive tense, which means this, there's nothing you can do to produce this in yourself. They all must be done to you and for you by God himself. And I wonder if you caught the very end of verse 11. Did you see how actively involved God is in the salvation of every sinner He says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All three members of the Trinity, did you catch that? Every single one of them. It's the Father's plan, the provision of the Son by the power of the Spirit. God so loved the world that he would give his only Son that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. God longs for you to be cleansed, to be made holy, and to be made right with him 